Episode 13, Artist Activist Phil America. My name is Michael Delgado, and I'm your host. I come to you each week from the fantastic library bar in the spectacular Mayfair Hotel right here in downtown LA. Today, I'm meeting artist and activist Phil America. From across the Art Deco lobby, he beams the no-nonsense smile of the consummate networker, bouncing between the hotel guests with an energy barely contained in his black no-flags hoodie, black jeans, and immaculate white sneakers. He extends his hand. It's time to meet. You know Geiger's bookstore across the street? I think I may have passed You know Geiger by sight? Geiger's in his early 40s, medium height, fattish, soft all over, Charlie Chan mustache, well-dressed, wears a black hat, affects the knowledge of antiques and hasn't any. And, oh, yes, I think his left eye is glass. Hello. 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 Today, my guest is Phil America. He is one interesting cat. Artist, writer, and activist, he's worked and lived throughout the U.S., Europe, Asia, and Africa, concentrating on individual moments of freedom while looking at relationships transcending class, gender, and race. Phil has collaborated with the United Nations, the International Labor Organization, World Vision, U.S. Department of Labor, UNESCAP, Planned Parenthood, the International Organization for Migration, the Australian government, the U.S. Embassy in Seoul, and others to create art projects in the gaps that exist between government and cultural institutions around the globe. Please welcome Phil America. Welcome Phil America. Thank you for having me. Yeah, pleasure. Have you been in the hotel before? I have, but it's been a little while, so. Ah. But it's beautiful in here. What did you do? What did you come for? Uh, my buddy owns a restaurant ah, a block away, Bombay yes, Beach, yes. so I came because he pointed me over here, and so... The Bombay Beach, we can plug the Bombay Beach. Plug the Bombay Beach, and get... <laughs> but he's the, he's the UCLA guy, and you're oh, UCLA no, guy, so no, I don't know no, if gonna, you might cut that. I don't know, that's right, that might, that might end up on the cutting room floor. No, that's nonsense. I, is it open tonight? It is, yeah. They're great, too. Really? Best Indian food in the city. We might have to go over there afterwards. Sure. All right. Anyway, hey. So thanks for coming. Um, I, I, I had a little bit of time uh, to look into what you're doing, and I have a bunch of questions, primarily around your work in Bangkok and in Jungle Land. But um, you, right before we got on, you started saying you just got off a meeting with uh, in a project you're working on in AI, and I don't know if you can talk about that or not. Um, I can, but probably not. You very intellectually. To. I mean, oh. I am well, learning what's the interest, as I But what's the interest in that? Um, I actually, very random enough, I did a radio show with a friend of mine, Mukta, and she had me on her show, and he heard the show, reached out, so we connected the, AI. the, AI, the guy who works in AI, uh -huh. and we just started to kind of jam and figure out a way to collaborate, basically. Now, when you work in AI, does he? what does that mean? Does he work for a big... He works on. with big companies, and so essentially he's kind of looking to work in the arts or with artists directly and find a way to maybe incorporate what he's doing into what they're already doing in their traditional practice. So, 
So the artistry part, is that to personalize the AI, to make the robots seem nicer or more human? Or or I would add a creative aspect to the algorithm? Well, I mean, AI can be used in so many different forms, as I understand it, and I'm like not by any means an expert, and which is kind of why he reached out to me in the first place. And he essentially said, hey, what would you do with artificial intelligence or data gathering robots or whatever yeah. whatever aspect it is that you like about AI, what would you do with it and how would you incorporate it into what you're already and doing? And that's kind of how we like started. And AI is such a giant term, right? right? So right. everybody, if you think of for me, I'm like, oh, Alexa or right. whatever, right? I, I, on the way over here, there was some uh, something on the NPR or whatever about license plate gathering mm. data, and that's so that they can track uh, w- where you have been, like based on your license plate thing. Right. Now. Yeah, which is nuts. That's right? fucking nuts. That's, yeah. uh, that's honestly scary, actually. Is what that yeah. Is. yeah, but yeah, it's, it's all AI, right? right? That's all, you know, it's, it, it's all algorithms that take images and then match them with other data, and then so right. they can know where you are. Well, I think the same thing with any technology is that it like can be used for good or evil. So right. it's for me, it's looking at it as a way to how can I use it as a layer to what I'm already working on and make what I'm already doing better. Mm-hmm. So if that functions in the way of gathering a bunch of information from some specific category or idea or group of people and then using that to influence the project that I'm working in, whether it just reaffirms what I'm already doing or whether it has a direct influence on like changing the direction that I'm going in, mm-hmm. I think that in and of itself is really interesting to me. So it's less about like handing over control to the, the AI and saying like, here's a bunch of paintings, now make a new painting. But yeah. rather like, how do I see this? Like for example, I, you know, as you know, I work with flags a lot as a motif or yes. as a, as a Yeah, thing. I wanna ask you about that. Right. So the idea with this is to kind of use, what we've met and talked about today was kind of using um, using this to kind of determine what a flag looks like or how a flag functions or how it operates or the way that it, the colors that it uses and mm-hmm. try to um, use AI to determine what that would actually be. Huh. So, uh, I'm not sure what that means, but... Me either. That's, that's what's interesting <laughs> about it. It's like, I'm like, okay, how do I, now how do I take this and like make something of it is, is the well, most Well, and, the and then the, the, the funny thing about that, of course, is flags... We should talk about how you incorporate them and what they mean to you. And then historically, of course, art and flags with people like Johns and stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, but flags are basically uh, ideas in and to themselves, right? Absolutely. Like, you know, when you, I mean, if you try to ban flag burning, you're really banning an idea, right? right. So, or an idea about an idea. Or allowing flag burning, you're also having an idea, and that's what's right. really interesting or you, about yeah, the you're, idea of burning a flag in the first place, right? So. Right, right. It's an idea about an idea. Absolutely. So, uh, so then to layer AI on top of that, well, good luck. Right. Well, I mean, just like as a simple application of it, if, if we said, let's take all the images that exist of a flag burning in the entire world, mm-hmm. and then ask AI to come up with an image of what that would look like and then print that onto a flag and make a new flag of a, of a flag burning. So like an idea, oh, wow. an idea as a flag. Right. So like there's so many ways that you could practically use it. And so I'm still trying to like wrap my head around how I would come even, up with that. you know, want it to function. All right. Well that, well, so then, so what is the obsession with flags for you then? But because it is an idea. And I mean, I think that there's hardly anybody in the world that doesn't um, acknowledge the magnitude or power of a flag in and of itself. Maybe not the flag of a nation, 
but maybe it's the flag of like their community or the flag of their school or the flag of their corporation or the flag of their you know the LGBTQ community right. or like flags have such intense meaning for so many people. Yeah, they're loaded images. They're loaded sure. images. So if you if we take the idea of like an artist painting on a white canvas in a white cube and you're supposed to enter there and have no preconceived notion, I kind of like subverting that and thinking of like, well, what if, what if the canvas itself had a charged meaning because it's a flag? And what if the space where it is also has influence over what it is that you're looking at? Then if all that comes along with what is on the flag, to me that's really, really fascinating. Hmm. So for example, if I create a flag that's you know, in the middle of a homeless encampment, and then it's also on a, it's a painting on a flag that's in that homeless encampment. You're going to take all that in before you even look at what the imagery is on the flag. So, to me, things being like yeah, specific, well, it's situational. I mean, yeah, I mean, right. a flag placed it, like the one you did in the border. There'll be pictures on aggeiger.com, but yeah, like the the border flags that you had done were made from uh, migrant garments. That, mm -hmm. that right, right. So, there's there's a location there's mm -hmm. there's materials right. and then uh, and then the the subversive element of, of, of planting the flag so to speak right in in well in that supercharged area of the right of it all becomes embedded person. into the work itself so it's like if I go and I see this you know, John's work at or Jeff Coons work or whoever's work at the Broad and then I go see it at another museum on the other side of the planet in China like somehow. For me, at least, when I'm driving to the museum, I'm taking all of that in, and I walk in, and I see it, and I see how the, the, the public's interacting with it, and that somehow has influence over how I perceive the work, and I don't know that that's true of everybody, but I, that's really important to me, so I try to look at that through the lens of art and how I want the art to be portrayed, so where it is, how it is, who's seeing it, who's not seeing it. Um, all becomes part of the work in and of itself. So well, context. Is, right. It's, is, it's all. It's, it's all, all about, about context. context. Yeah. I mean, I used to live in Minneapolis, and one of the I can't remember the artist, but there was a, a tiny little gold chair, and uh, it was next to a drain in the in the in the museum. And a friend was just baffled, like, why is that art, you know? <laughs> right, right. <laughs> and they were like, well, I could do that. And he wanted to, like, just put something in the museum and, like, take pictures and, like, mm -hmm. see, I could do that too. And I'm like, well, yeah, the whole point is the context. Right? Absolutely. And it, it has to do with all the, the structure, literally and right. figuratively, figuratively around that thing right? right so you can't just look at it's not just a little gold chair next to a drain right. <laughs> right and i think that that's inherent with a flag so it speaks to like the larger public who doesn't necessarily come into the space knowing the historical relevance of the work and where all the formal qualities are mm -hmm. and who they're referencing and etc 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 that maybe someone who studied art knows when they walk up and they see that jeff coot sculpture or that painting right. by pollock or whoever right yeah but if you walk up and you see a flag, you know that the flag has meaning and then you can already interpret something with that. So I think that that's, that's kind of huh. yeah. how I approach every project is like, do I want it to speak to the 1% of the, the general public or the world that understands art and all of its, all that comes with it? Sure, of course. But I also want to speak to the larger population who usually feels excluded when they, when you talk about galleries. Yeah, like my buddy who just said, like, why is right, like I can do that. I can do that. Yeah. yeah. But it's like, okay, but could you actually spend months interacting with people who are crossing the border illegally and like helping them by trading clothes for their new like i what i did for that project was that every piece of clothes that they gave me let's say a shirt i gave them two new shirts if they had a torn tattered jacket that they wore across the border which maybe is like one of their only possessions they give me that and i give them two new, brand new jackets 
And so in that way, I'm creating that relationship and like building that and then cutting those up ultimately and making a flag that then is also symbolizes what they were um, trying to right. get to, which is America, and then putting that into a frame and putting that on the border and creating a gallery on the border, which the border itself is very charged. I think that then, you know, like your buddy, for an example, can understand that without understanding anything about art. He understands what the border is, he understands what flags are, and he can read into that in his own way without, without right. all that preconceived art Art baggage. Right, yeah. Right. And, yeah, so you're working with popular imagery that has its own loaded... Uh, loaded meanings but aren't but are sort of outside the art canon so to speak well i think i mean i try to do both to be completely honest but i it's i think that that's the one challenge that i give myself always is like can i show this to my mom and explain it to her without her ever knowing a single thing about art and its history Mm -hmm. can i show this to someone and it be equally as relevant to them without them knowing anything well well, that's an interesting thing about your work of just putting art in places that are and it's unexpected like just a block from here mm-hmm. right you made a installation in a swap meet right yeah and that's a similar impulse then to like yeah I mean I mean so for me everything I to put it like very simply and to create like a through line between everything I do is that it all really starts with a question whether that's a question for me or a question for the public at large or both or to a philosophy of something um, so for example, the Swap Meet Gallery, I, I thought it was really interesting that something like this exists and it exists outside the, the way that the city functions and it exists outside bureaucracy. And, um, and then also just like, why, why is it so um, specific to only this specific neighborhood and why would this not exist in West Hollywood, for example? Um, and then just kind of approaching it in that, that way and then looking at how this functions in its own like autonomous way and so I started going to these swap meets in this area in Westlake and starting to started to make friends with people who were there and who were living there and who were working out of there and uh, ultimately decided to create something within that space that what cr- what I wanted to create was again a gallery and I use that like in quotes just like the gallery on the border wall um, and basically to like create and bring art to a space like this but then also taking into account what the space is in and of itself is like this is a swap meet this isn't a fine art gallery or a blue chip gallery in london or a fucking fancy right. museum in fucking west hollywood right it's a well so there was you know claus oldenburg did his famous store mm-hmm. in the 60s exactly. right and exactly. then, um yeah so for this i wanted it to exist outside of of the art world like and again there's embedded into everything I do there's of course like art references there's obviously historical precedent you can point to within the arts um, all of that comes into play but then like with this specifically the idea was to have the gallery be the artwork as well as have artwork right. in the gallery and so all of the work in the gallery was direct relate directly related to prison and the prison industrial complex so there was two parts to that one was I partnered with Think Tank Gallery who was at the time getting kicked out of their gallery downtown and we they curated along with Greg Escalante a show um, of all works who were by artists who had been in trouble with the law before um, so we had everybody from Shepard Ferry and Chaz Barranquez to Utah Ether to like a whole bunch of other artists like who are working within the fine art sphere but who are also 
have also like had a running with the levels, to put it quite mm -hmm. simply. Some some harder sentences than others. Then I coupled that with a bunch of art that was smuggled out of the California prison system. So it was all works by, I mean, for lack of a better description, outsider artists who are not even necessarily considering themselves artists, but are essentially creating craft. Um, for a simple example, a picture frame or a wallet or something functional or non-functional that is made out of cigarette cartons that they right. then like macrame into like an actual artwork. So I partnered with them, paid all of them, and then paid off people to have things smuggled out, and then created the show with that coupled with the artists who are already working within the, right. the art world. So. And how was that received by the general public that went by? They went, I mean, those wallets sound pretty cool, actually. <laughs> I don't know well, how I mean, functional the, they are. The idea was like, I, I was less concerned with making art for the fine art world and trying to make art for that community because that community huh. is very often left out of that conversation and people always talk about how, you know, you have a public museum and it's supposed to be for the public, but like there's the public for them is like rich, wealthy, white people who sure. understand what art is. So those people were already all familiar with that iconography and that imagery of like, these things and like these drawings of people who were in prison and all the other stuff that I had smuggled out and whereas like maybe they weren't as familiar with uh, Jazz Barinquas for example but then they come to see that guy's work coupled with this and vice versa like it was written up in a bunch of press so you had people from the art world coming to this community and seeing that work and then also seeing this kind of outsider art and then all while at the same time like integrating these people and building a bridge within that community and the only stipulation we had, or the only like rule we had with coming to the, the gallery itself was that you had to spend at least $5 at one of the other vendors and then come and prove that you had bought something. So somebody would go and buy a juice or they would go buy a fake handbag or whatever they would buy and then they would come and say, hey, look, like I bought this. And then they were able to come into the gallery. Oh. And so there was no like rule that they had to buy anything from us. They could take any pictures they want, do anything they want. But... They had to buy something from yeah, the community. Yeah, they had to participate in the community. Exactly. So yeah, cool. that way, like, creating a real actual dialogue between the community members and the people who are coming. Mm -hmm. So so a bridge between people who know about art, so to speak. Sure. Or have the... Yeah. And, and, and I think it goes both ways. Like, I think that the people in the community do know about art, but it's in a much different way. And maybe it's not art with a capital A. Maybe it's not, like, what we learn when we go and learn about art. But it's something completely different and maybe should be in the sphere of what art is and so again like I don't I certainly don't think I have the answers it starts with a question for me and maybe my only question there is like how do we you know why aren't these people considered artists like they're they are dedicating their life to creating art and they spend more time on this work than many other artists do and so trying to put those people on the same level and like create that mm -hmm. conversation is super interesting to me yeah that is I mean I'm art part of it uh, why is that uh, well, because it, um, for the, you know, like you're saying, like you, you want to bring an outsider art artist to be recognized in what is the insider art, whatever that is, or what I refer to as the Museo Industrial Complex. <laughs> That's the best way to put it. I'm going to steal that, by the way. Yeah, you can use it, but just, you know, credit me, please. Yeah. Because it is, right? I mean, there's, there's a whole there's a whole complex that goes on and it, and it, it you know it's, it's it's around academia and all that mm -hmm. and so um, you know there's outsider art you know on a RIP uh, Greg Escalante he was, he was a friend of mine he, and, and you know at the gallery on Chunking Road where the, where the uh, bookstore is and so you know I got to know him quite well um, 
uh, you know, but in a, in effect, you know, they're creating their own museum industrial complex of right. you know people who would collect particular people and um, and so on. So um, that's that's where I, I, I you know like you're saying you want to bring you know someone who is in fact an artist but you know I don't somehow legitimize it or whatever in the museum right. <laughs> industrial complex. Well, right? I mean, I think if you even look at the other artists who are showing, like a Charles Brinkwas or a, or you know whoever. Um, I don't think that people looked at them like, or, or Shepard Fairies is a better example, I don't think people looked at him as anything other than outsider artist, and maybe they still mm -hmm. do, but he was always like outsider artist, street artist, and now he's, you can see him in some of the, the better museums on the planet. So right. I think that that's what it takes, is takes putting these, these works and these artists on the same level, and I don't use the term outsider artist, I use it for like lack of a better word again, because right. I think that that's maybe how you make it palatable to somebody who understands art and doesn't necessarily see this as, as an artwork. Uh -huh. Interesting. And then it's like, it's also about creating a space where people can come and have those conversations. Like, again, I don't have any answers about anything and I don't certainly don't think that I will ever come up with any answers. So it's, it's always about just like trying to create a conversation at the end of the day. Yeah, so I was curious too about, okay, so the, on the outsider aspect of it and your own work in terms of, uh, you know, marginalized societies, right? You used a marginalized artist in terms of prison artists uh, or people who made art in prison. Um, but then your work, uh, which, you, you know, is basically performance work, right? But yeah. you would, you know, there fairly harrowing, right? I mean, um, there are two pieces I'm curious about. The um, work in Bangkok and Jungle Land, I think it is, right? It's called The Jungle, yeah. The Jungle. In California here, yeah. Oh, okay. So if you could maybe describe what, how that came about, the experience, and then, uh, you know, the impetus for it and what you, you know, what you learned, I guess, or not. Right. Well, I think interpersonally, everything starts with performance for me so it's always about some the, the performance aspect is what's extremely fascinating to me within all of the work that i do and there's more often than not works that i do that i don't end up showing or portraying as an artwork it ends up just being like a story in my life um, those two in particular are not the case but essentially the in bangkok the idea was i started to explore a community build relationships there, try to do what I could to give back, but also to accept what they, whatever they would give me, whether that's knowledge or experience. Um, and then ultimately decided to have a home built and go live there, which is what um, I ended up doing there in the largest loan, which is in Southeast Asia. And that the performance aspect of it is not something where any anybody from the arts comes and sees, right? So I didn't, I had been contacted by a whole number of people, like arts writers from Bangkok Post, which is the biggest English uh, newspaper in Asia, et cetera, et cetera, and wouldn't allow anybody to come and see the performance with the exception of people from that community that I had built the relationships with, but then ultimately broke the house down and then had it rebuilt with the carpenters who helped me build it in an art space and then showed that as an artwork and people were able to come see that. So. Just like I am only experiencing a small sliver of what it's like to live within this community, I, I don't like think that I know what it's like to live there. I just think I know a sliver of what it's like or have a different insight than maybe 
you would get if you read something from a journalist who just went there for a couple hours a couple times and took the most the best photos they could get right. and then called it a day um, but same with coming into the art space and seeing that you're then seeing the home as well as like video I shot when I was there as well as like the you know surround sound and the lighting and the smells and like tried to recreate all that so that you're like slightly immersed within the space that I was immersed within during my performance and so, how did you decide like a month was long enough or I went into it not having like a, a set amount of time so I just went into it like I'm gonna go live there and see what what happens so at about a month I felt like okay I've, I've done it and so I had spent months leading up to that, almost a year probably, going there on a very regular basis. I lived within that community, but on the outside of the slum, still in the same neighborhood, and just was going, I mean, like, in a sky rise, though, mind you, like, in the middle of the most visited city on the planet, where there's, you know, this huge, huge, huge gap of wealth between, like, people who live in the slum and everybody else. Right. And even, even Thai people would never, ever, ever go to this community, which is what drew me to it in the first place. It's like, as soon as somebody says, hey, that's off limits, you're not supposed to go there, you're not supposed to deal <laughs> with it. straight there. Yeah. I, I mean, yeah, that's, <laughs> that's just, like, who I am, is I want to go there and try to understand better why it is somebody's telling me not to go there, because... The reality is the people that are telling you not to go there are the people who look like me anyways. It's like sure. a bunch of white elitists who are saying, hey, this, this is this community, it's off limits. But yet, if you go there and you actually immerse yourself then like, and you take the time and the, the energy it takes to, to build relationships with you, in my experience, people have always welcomed me with open arms. Now, does that make me like a part of that community? Certainly not. But it's certainly, I will say certainly, like I am happy that I go there and I'm happy that I have that exchange and right. create that, that bridge between the two. So are you hoping then that there's, there's an activist portion of this that, or, or is it just a, it's an awareness, but... I mean, I, I, think, I think I'm more of an activist than an artist always. And I think I'm more of, I, I approach things more scientifically and more as a journalist or from a research standpoint, of an unbiased research standpoint, where I have a question and I'm going in and trying to collect this data and I bring understanding two ways within this space and to try to understand it rather than coming in and saying like, this is what this shit needs because yeah. there's enough of that for yeah. sure. Yeah. But what I do know from experience is seeing that the people coming in and saying what this, these communities need are very often skewed and biased and very much coming from what they think they need rather than what the community thinks they need. So huh. whether that's in Skid Row or whether that, not, sure. not to diminish what people are doing anywhere because there is people doing amazing work, but like you'll see, so for the, yeah, the jungle. Yeah, well, yeah, they're, like you're saying, yeah, it's like the, the knight in shining armor, but he has exactly. no idea what's going on. Exactly. And so it's like, how can you purport to say that you know what a community needs if you've never even stayed the night there? That, that's like really what sparked something for me was like right. how can I send, pretend to like give back if I don't even know what it's like for them to wake up here and that right. that's I, I don't hardly know any people who have like slept in Skid Row or who have slept in the jungle right. or have slept in the slum so voluntarily anyway. right voluntarily excuse me yeah <laughs> right <laughs> but yeah I mean it's like there's hardly anybody who's working there who is from the outside of that sure. community and like has actually spent real time there so to me, it just feels, I, I think the intentions are always genuine of people, but I think that it oftentimes doesn't uh, equal something something good. So, okay, so you, you, you through your art, then you're bringing a spotlight on these kind of places, and I'm curious, again, you mentioned the jungle, and it was similar, I would assume, or, or, and I'm, are the needs in, in Bangkok? I mean, obviously there's a lot of overlap. Similar? 
but there's an overlap between the suburbs and the slums, you know? So, and then there's vast differences between everything. But from a community standpoint, like if you look at any autonomous community, neighborhood, nation, state, city, obviously there's a lot that these communities have in common. And so I think that what is lost on people is the commonalities between these communities. So I go into it with some understanding of how to function in an autonomous society, which the reality is most people do understand that, yet they look at them as the other, as the outside, and say like, oh, I have no, I, I can't even begin to understand what their life is like. When Actually, the opposite is yeah, true. Yeah, yeah, but it's it's the human experience. I mean, Absolutely. there's a the little society and, and the you know sense of community and everything, but it's just uh, without a roof. Right. Yeah, and I think I mean like they have a home. It's not that they. I, I think that that's like one thing that's really odd to me is how the, this term homeless gets thrown around, where it's like they have a home. It's just not the same home as me or you. It's not the one where we pay a bunch of federal tax money that goes to Donald Trump. It's one where they're living like in their own autonomous society and doing functioning within the way that they want to function. And oftentimes it's not by choice and sometimes it is, you know, some of the people that live there are living there because they want to be there. So Right. And I'm wondering, I was curious like uh, about that because I've thought about homelessness a lot and I actually had some uh, uh, tech people that we were thinking about, you know, creating some kind of an app that I won't go into, but um, anyway, so I've, I've thought about it a lot, and I was curious, like, what percentage actually just doesn't want to come in, so to speak. I mean, I'm sure in one way or shape or form or another, there's a, there's a lot of people who don't want to, you know, right. and I and I think they have just reasons not to want to be a part sure. of certain things, and I think that, um, yeah, I mean, without speaking for anybody else, I think that it really just starts with trying to talk to people, you know, it's, it's a very simple equation that I think that gets lost on a lot of people, whether it's activists, artists, people working in the nonprofit sphere, or people just who are in the neighborhood and they have somebody homeless on their corner, like, do they know their name? Probably not. And that to me is already strange. Like the fact that there's people within your community and you see them every day, you don't know their name, maybe you've thrown money at them, but that's it. And so I mean, it's just, the end of the day is just stop and talk to them for a few minutes and see what's up. Maybe they have something <laughs> to offer, you know? Maybe you have something to offer them, and I think that that's lost on people, sadly. Yeah, well, I, you know, I live in Chinatown, and um, there, the, the, there's a fair amount of homeless that wander in and out, and they're, you know, they're the locals. Right. <laughs> and, yeah, there's one named Fox, and, uh, you know, I, I've had him watch the store for me. Well. Uh, but, uh, you know, there's days when Fox can't watch the store because, you know, I don't know what he's on or what, yeah. his, what his issues are. Right. Other examples of that that we've had, too, are the, you know, locals again. And we've tried to get, you know, find them the services they need or whatever. Mm -hmm. But um, but it's a, it's a, it's a big, big-ass problem, that's right. for sure. Well, it's a big problem for the people who aren't like me and you who don't have a ton of power right so uh -huh. i think that the the only thing that we can do is like have conversation around that figure out what the fuck to do because there's there's so much i mean downtown is half empty there's so many places where people could live and there's right. it's by design that people are sleeping on the street so i think that the only way to fix anything is to get the people who have the power to fix things whether that's us as a group or whether that's the people who press the buttons and are in charge or both of us together mm -hmm. we've got to have a conversation about how we 
you know, find resources for people and give them homes and make sure that they have a roof over their head if they want one and make sure that they have food when they go to sleep if they want food, you know? So, and that starts with all of us having a conversation together, so. Right. So is that, you, you see that at your role then as an artist is to start the conversation or sure. do you, or? Well, uh, I'm usually the conversations there already. It's just like maybe furthering the conversation or, you know, asking more questions and if I'm the bad guy, if I'm the platform, or if I'm not hurt at all, like I'm okay with all of it. It's just, if all it does is bridge a little bit of a gap, then okay. Like for, like I was saying in, in Bangkok, there's people living in the slums and nobody from the rest of the, the city has ever come there. And yet when I had the opening, all the people that I knew from the slum came and then all the art, fine art world came and mm -hmm. they were all in the room at the same time having the same conversations. So huh. if, that, if that's all it does, that's okay for me. And that's usually the remnant of, of the performance in and of itself. So like the performance in the swap meet was the performance of having the show. It wasn't like whether somebody buys the work. It isn't sure. anything yeah. beyond that. Like there's a giant mural on, across the top that says swap meet that myself and the people from Think Tank and Dorian Lynn painted together. And that's something that still exists and like that's a remnant and a piece of work of, and a, like a layer of the the work itself but for me the important part is the performance right one of the things that came to mind when i was looking at your work it, i was thinking about joseph boys and his activism and actually starting the green party right and then i was struck or and then it occurred to me that like to, to your point, like, oh yeah, we start this conversation and maybe we can get things going and maybe we can get, you know, maybe we can solve homelessness or whatever. Um, but I was thinking about it, I'm like, you know, the problem after the artists, you know, initiate the conversation, at least, is, is then it becomes, you know, political and the, the issue with the Green Party is they can't even fucking get somebody on the city council. Right. You know, they don't know how to organize. You know, how do we move from what you're doing to actually activate? It's a hard question. Again, I don't know that I have the answers. And the reality is I don't know that I want to be the one giving the answers. Like, I think the, the, the people that need to give the answers are the ones who are the most affected. And there's enough... Um, I mean, first of all, I think it's already political. Right, like things are already in it. Well, you're, you're, well, right? you're, but you're you, most of your work's around flags. Right, so it's like <laughs> for me, it's about things are already political. So I'm not like I can't shy away from things being political. So within every conversation I have, it becomes political because it is already political, and there's already politicians who are already working on all these things and working in one way or the other. And so if art can create more of a conversation to help influence that whether that's put more people in the Green Party in a position to have more power, or whether that's simply to like make a politician hear a little bit more of a voice of people who necessarily who don't necessarily have mm -hmm. a voice, mm -hmm. whatever the sliver of, of that may be, then right. that's all it is for me. And I, and I again, like I don't, I don't wanna have the answer, but I wanna put somebody on my shoulders that does. And so I think that, I think a lot of people think that, um, you know, art can change the world. And I don't know that it can. I don't think that it can. I don't think it can be the fire that changes the world. But I definitely think that art can be the, the spark to the flame that starts it. So if I'm just there to spark it, and that's a one more spark out of all the other big sparks that are happening, and there's this big conversation happening, and everybody's asking all these questions, and people are giving all of these answers, ultimately it's going to create a big flame that then maybe does right. change the world. So Yeah, I, I, we had a similar, or I had a similar conversation with... Uh, uh, a poet, Brendan Constantine, 
It's the second episode. You should check it out. Because I asked him the same sort of question, which was, um, uh, you know, back in the day, you know, there was a revolution or whatever, and they uh, they came for the poets first. Right. <laughs> and and I don't see that happening. And I, I told him, like, I don't see anybody racing after a poet right now, you know. Mm -hmm. And uh, not that we're necessarily, we're close to a revolution. But anyway, um, but his answer was really, really good. He, uh, you know, he stood up for it because I was kind of slamming him. But, and, and, you know, basically why, why is poetry important? And uh, he had a really, really eloquent response, which I would ask you guys to listen to because I'm going to butcher it right now. But basically the idea, his response was, he's like, well, you know, poetry and art in general is about expressing ideas and mm -hmm. it's the ideas that get quashed and uh, and the more eloquent uh, eloquent um, you know the more dangerous right is basically how we put it so um, but it's also about like the person saying it too and that's the reality is that a lot of people who are homeless have no voice let's uh, to put it quite yeah. simply so if if I have some voice and somebody will listen to what I have to say and all I'm doing is simply amplifying what they're saying like then I think that that's that's important or if you're a poet and you can write poetry and you can speak to a much larger issue than yourself but you have a platform it doesn't matter if you're a poet or an athlete or an artist if you have a platform and you can put somebody on your shoulders and give them a voice then more power to it you know so yeah. I think that there is a, a extreme importance for poetry or for anybody with a with the platform to speak up and speak well I don't, you know I don't know the poetry has a huge platform anymore but it's probably true sadly and sadly enough mm. right I mean yeah I, I did a, I did a project downtown this year I believe um, really recently with a friend of mine who I work with a lot named Trey Borden who's amazing he's a producer works in the art sphere but overlaps kind of into everything else um, and he and I created a project at the Los Angeles Athletic Club. Do you know it? Yeah, sure. Well, oh, uh, you know, we're in the Mayfair, which is a Raymond Chandler thing. Right. A huge Raymond Chandler, A.G. Geiger. L.A. Uh, Athletic Club was, he was a member there. As was like everybody influential in L.A. back in the day. In the so 30s, like, yeah. And, uh, yeah. And actually it was like almost kicked out of there. Right. You know, the, it's super fascinating with the history of the Los Angeles Athletic Club. Yeah. But so I did a project there with the downtown DC bid um, that was funded by them, and Trey Borden was the one who was the producer on it. Um, and he, we like spent time within the club looking at all of the different typography and like took influence from that. Worked with a buddy by name Simon from Sweden, and he helped like with the design itself. And then we created basically a giant visual poem where we took a poem from LA called I'm Alive in Los Angeles, from LA poet called I'm Alive in Los Angeles, and basically turned it into a whole series of paintings. So there was a flag that was painted, there was windows that were like completely painted, and then I carved out letters in the typography that I found within the space, and then backlit them with LEDs so they shone out at night, and then there was like- And where was this installed? At the- At the athletic club, on oh. the bottom two floors of it, yeah. facing the street, all completely facing the street. And then there was like a little bit of it that was on the inside, um, and then there was like a store with all things that were handmade in LA that I didn't really have anything to do with. But um, all of the poem was seen throughout the inside and outside of the space. So, no, I, you know, I, I love poetry. I think it can be really quite powerful. And and I, honestly, I think there is something of a renaissance in poetry. Like it, it had, you know, um, it gets a lot of airplay now. At least in you know, the, the New York Times is 
covers it quite a bit. But um, so, in any case, I, I, are you um, are you currently represented at a gallery or no? No, never was, never will be. I don't think. Don't want it. Not necessarily. No. I think it's not really an interest in it for me. I think it's fascinating how artists are able to do it and like be able to concentrate more on the work than having to be a business person and that's ex obviously extremely amazing and I commend like obviously a whole series of galleries who are able to create that for artists and that's amazing in and of itself but uh, well as a performance person you don't really make objects yeah I mean usually there's a, the object that I will sell will end up being a remnant of the sure. performance right, so right, right. And that's probably the same as every other artist, whether they think about it that way or not. I don't know. But like, if you're a painter, your yeah. people are paying for the performance. So that's the painting, right? But that said, um, so I mean, I do make and sell objects, and that's normally how I fund my life. But um, working with a gallery just seems daunting and restricting. Mm. So, so if I don't have to, I don't know that I need to. And you've done other kinds of work now, like right? You're also crossover into almost design or mm -hmm. uh, even marketing, right? Right. Yeah, well, I mean, what's interesting is that art is a language and so is design. And design, it's like very, I mean, it's one of the first things you learn when you just study design is that there's the language of design and you're trying to communicate something and usually you're trying to communicate what the product is or what the you know, marketing plan is. Whereas within the arts, it's a little bit more left up to the artist what it is that they're trying to say or ask or question or where they're going with the work, whether you know, through that own that specific language. So the crossover there is very evident to me and like very obvious. So it's for me if I'm going to work with somebody like right now I'm working on some stuff with PETA. I did some stuff with them in the past. It's super simple to use what they want to say and create some visual narrative with what they're trying to say. Right. Well so you're a storyteller and you can you know and you're good at it and you can you know, storytelling is a real skill, and especially in the in the hands of a marketer. Um, but you want to use your powers for good. Sure. <laughs> and I think that the reality is there's like there's it's people like, doing good. Though. I have superpowers, and I want to use them for good. Right. I mean, I think that's usually most artists. They just think that good is lining their pockets. <laughs> it's just not the worst thing in the world Quite either. But possibly, yeah. I mean, art is usually like very masturbatory. Like it's just people getting themselves off. I feel like usually, but for me, it's something. Well, that's the activist in you. I mean, I think for me, I'm a purist, and I've said this a number of times on the cast, and um, it, and that's you know, to me, it's art as long as it's in the studio. And once it leaves, it's commerce. Mm -hmm. It's absolutely true. And uh, and so I, you know, people say, "Well, you're such a purist." And I'm like, no, I think that's right. You know? So what if the art is not made in the studio then? Well, I'm, you know, like you said, the performance or what, whatever, whatever the art is. Right. It's uh, unless you're going to try and create a piece that has a commercial element in it. Right. I mean, that's usually how. When I turn it into art, in quotes, or art with a capital A, that's usually where it becomes art for me or in, for somebody else. Let's when say. it's activated it's, monetarily? Sure. Well, not monetarily, but when there's like a tangible object or something to show. And that could be a video work. Mm. That could be a sound installation. Oh, that could be a flag that's hand painted. But I mean, like if you look at 
like Chris Burden, for example, his performance works, you can buy some of them or you can buy a remnant of them, like the right. famous one where he, in Venice where he nailed himself to the Volkswagen. Volkswagen you can yeah. buy, I think maybe Gogosian or somebody has ownership of the, the spikes, the spikes yeah. that went through his hands. So that's maybe my approach to it is that there's like a, a remnant or an element or a piece of, of tangible object that becomes the work. Mm -hmm. that, but that's, the work for that me that is that's marketable, but the other piece sure. is not, right? Sure. Yeah. But I was wondering if you could, you know, push that and say, okay, well, I'm going to make this art and it's going to be uh, an app that saves homelessness. And, sure. You know, sure. And look at the entire app and the, that whole piece and, and bringing everybody together and all that as the artwork. Well, I think that, that I've tried to do that a number of times within my work and sometimes I don't feel as though I need to put the, the capital A onto it. Maybe it's not even artwork, and right. I'm a lot less um, worried about definitions and defining it mm -hmm. than most artists. I think that every time any critic has written about my work, it's always like trying to put it into a box that sure. already exists. Well, they have to, because otherwise they can't talk about it. Right, and they want it to be, you know, art is self-referential. So, yeah. yeah, I mean, you want to figure out a way to translate it to people that they understand and put it into the, the canon of what's already understood, and like that makes sense to me, and that's embedded in the work that I do if I say that it's art. So there's oftentimes things that I work on that maybe I don't necessarily need to say is an artwork. Maybe it is, maybe it isn't. Maybe the approach is the same, but the reception is different. So for example, I work with a school in Thailand. It's called Dear Burma. We, uh, I was going to ask you about that, but go, go ahead. You know, so we have all Burmese students, they're all migrants who are living and working in Thailand. They've all, not all, but almost all come there without permission, have spent sometimes months going through a jungle. A lot of them have lost their lives. Their families have lost their lives. The military junta going on in their own countries. Yeah, so they yeah, come yeah. there for economic freedom or literal freedom. Um, and so we essentially we teach them English and Burmese and Thai and better integrate them into the society that they're living in and try to give them a leg up and a, an ability to actually become free because even when they arrive they're put straight into a usually put straight into a situation that's literally slavery. Mm -hmm. So the only way to get freedom from that is through education. So education becomes something extremely important in that sense and so we basically educate all these students. Right now we have about 3,500 a year students that come through the school, been there for like 12, 13 years now. Um, and is that an artwork? I don't know. I don't care. So <laughs> it's like, it's the same thing I like said to an app. Like if there was an app that I felt like I could somehow create and could put the, create the right uh, situation, I, then that's... Could you call it art? Yeah. And, and, and actually that would be the best kind of art, right? I, mean, I don't know. I'm, I don't know what the best or the worst is. I mean, there's some well, stuff... Well, I mean, it's like, it's like using your superpowers for good, right? Sure. But I mean, there's so, there's so much art, too, that's just incredible and has nothing to say in terms of like it being social practice or right. having a, it, an effect on things, and that's okay, too. Like, there's so much that I love that doesn't... Yeah, that can just be enjoyed and doesn't sure. have a... a that's a okay, too. Function, <laughs> right? yeah. I love it all. I just think that like for me, what's important is always trying to... Uh, investigate things that I actually really care about because I, I didn't study art. I don't necessarily think that I'm an artist that fits into the sphere of like what art is at this moment and so that's okay with me. I'm okay with being something else. It just happens to fuel my life and fund my life and create a way that I can interact and engage and speak to a, a much larger audience than if I just spoke in the languages that I speak. So it's like if I can speak in a language that reaches everybody, that's what I'm going to do. So. Right. Well, I love the way you blur all the lines, and uh, 
Thank you for coming in. I think we're pretty well done. Unless you have something, do you have something you're coming that's coming up that you need to you'd like to talk about or need to talk about? Is not need. I mean, yeah. 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 I mean, right now I'm working with Trey Borden again on a new project where we are working with LA Pride and we're using flags, and we are essentially taking the new, like more progressive colors that aren't the traditional rainbow flag. We're inspired by this Daniel Quasar flag that has. The trans colors has the black, has the brown, and so like investigating that and like looking at what each of those colors could symbolize in communities that have been ignored within the LGBTQ community and giving voice to them both from the past all the way up until now. So like the other day I was telling you how I'm going to USC, I'm going to um, the One Archives to look back at um, pulling quotes from there. Right. Some people who have you know lost their lives from the movement. One is a LGBTQ. LGBTQ, yeah. Thank you. Yeah. Uh, initiative inside USC, right? right yeah. Correct. Yeah. It's called One. One, yeah. Okay. One. I think so. One Archives or One. But anyhow, uh, sorry, I just had to get the plug in for the old school. Had to get the plug <laughs> in. But yeah, they've been very gracious and opened the doors, and yeah. like, we're going there to go look through the people, archives. Yeah. And um, then also contemporary people who, you know, whether they're part, whether they're quite literally gay or lesbian or trans, or whether they've been an ally like a Gavin Newsom. Um, who's done so much for the community to uh, pull quotes from them and also like contemporary people who are actors or musicians and then painting all of those quotes on the flags and those are going to be strung over the where the parade goes uh, in West Hollywood for the Pride Festival and then we also plan on and are trying to do in a number of other cities hopefully uh, culminating in New York for World Pride so it's the awesome. 50th anniversary of Stonewall it's kind of what sparked it and uh Basically. Well, cool. And that's coming up shortly now. Short, yeah. <laughs> so you got a little work to do. A lot of work to do. It's hundreds of paintings. So, well, I'll let you get out of Appreciate it. Thank you for having me. Hey, thank you for coming. My guest today has been Phil America. We'll have pictures up uh, and links on aggeiger.com but please check out his own site at philamerica.com that's p-h-i-l america.com ag geiger presents tales from the la art underworld is produced by me michael delgado in conjunction with the mayfair hotel and the music and artist management company regime 72 please check us out at mayfairla.com regime72.com and of course aggeiger.com thanks for listening